Welcome. Aaron here. Ken here. We realized that last time our listeners may be new and maybe don't know us so well. So both of them. Yes. Both of us. Both <laughs> listeners. <laughs> so we thought we would start off this time with a quick lightning round of questions to introduce ourselves to get to know your hosts a little better. Ken, you ready to go first? I am. All right. Don't think too hard about these and yeah. I'll save judgment for later. Okay. We have not been prepped. There's been no prep for this. I have no idea uh, what genre of questions uh, Aaron will be asking me, nor uh, does he know what I'll be asking. Nope. Okay. Start the clocks. Ready? Go. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Favorite style of eggs? Mm, um, nope. Poached. Poached. Current TV show you're watching? Uh, just finished up Dear Child on Netflix. Weights or cardio? Oh, cardio. Ooh. Do you like core or glam muscles? Uh glam i would assume i don't have either so <laughs> both seem attractive <laughs> current book you're reading uh, uh fairy tale by stephen king uh do you have a fan in the bedroom i do her name is mariah favorite shoes do you have to ask I i'm a avid uh, flip-flop wearer and, and have been well past my uh years that i should be wearing flip-flops but i do anyway so yep last movie you saw in theaters oh man um man it's been a while all right, Skip. What cell phone carrier do you use? T-Mobile. What kind of hot sauce do you keep in your house? Sauce. Uh, we're, we're just like Frank's Red Hot. We're pretty like average. Okay. Last concert you saw? Uh, oh, uh, Revivalists in the Head and the Heart. Acoustic or electric? Acoustic. Winter or summer? Summer. In the summer, teas or tanks? Uh, teas because of my aforementioned lack of core and glam muscles. <laughs> what time do you arrive for a 10 a.m. meeting? <laughs> It depends. Uh, typically, I am there roughly 10, I will say in the ish part of 10. So that'd be anywhere from 10 to 10.05. I'm, I'm notably terribly not punctual. Favorite spirit? Oh, man. I got to go. The ghost of Christmas past was awesome. <laughs> How do you drink your coffee? Uh, with a little bit of sugar, a little bit of cream. DC or Marvel? Marvel. Favorite character? Ooh, uh, Wolverine's always had a sort of a, a place in my heart. Lord of the Rings or Star Wars? Oh, um, man, I, if you had asked me 10 years ago, I would have said Star Wars, but I would say Lord of the Rings right now. Game of Thrones or The Leftovers? Uh, I gotta go Game of Thrones, too, on that. Favorite type of bagel? Uh, sesame bagel. Hmm. Favorite holiday? Uh, Thanksgiving. Three celebs you want to meet on this podcast? Stephen King would be cool to meet. Brandon Flowers would be cool to meet. Dan from Bastille. <laughs> okay. Beach or mountains? Mountains. Taylor or Miley? Taylor. Kevin Costner or Clint Eastwood? Costner. But purely generationally speaking. I just <laughs> I don't have a lot of Clint Eastwood in my background. <laughs> Boxers or briefs? Boxer briefs? What brand? Uh, I think I'm wearing Fruit of the Loom. Favorite Simpsons character? Uh, Professor Frank. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> the, the best thing you can grill? Chicken thighs. Okay. Do you wear hats? Not willingly. What's the worst facial hair you've ever had? Super big soul patch uh, in the you know early 2000s. <laughs> big, big into the soul patch. How early do you leave your house for a flight? Generally two hours before the flight. The last musical you saw on stage. Mm. Uh, Alanis Morissette one. What was that one I saw with you? Uh, oh, Jagged Little the, Pill. Jagged Little Pill. Thank you. Yes. That was so good. That was good. <laughs> Would you rather call a professional or try and figure out a home repair issue? 100% figure it out on my own. I literally just hung a lamp before we came here. Good for you. Ryan Gosling or Channing Tatum? Gosling. Favorite burger chain? I'll say five guys. I'm not very well versed in all the burger chains. I always have a hard time paying, you know, thirteen dollars for a burger. <laughs> sure. And favorite co-host? Oh, I gotta be. Um, who's the guy? Who's the? I just heard him the other day. Oh, okay, me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> all all right. right. That wraps up our interrogation. Tune in next week to hear Ken interrogate me. Welcome to Native Tongues. <laughs> Thank you.
Our guest this week is a University of Baltimore professor and memoirist who ascribed 11 books. She appeared on The Oprah Winfrey Show for her first Her writing has been published in the Austin Chronicle, the New York Times Magazine, People, Newsday, Washington Post, and soon, Cosmo. Her award-winning column, Bohemian Rhapsody, appears monthly in the Baltimore Fishbowl. She was a longtime commentator on NPR's All Things Considered. She now hosts the NPR podcast, The Weekly Reader. This woman was real fun to chat with and surprised us with jaw-dropping stories at every turn. Let's welcome Marion Winnick. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Hi. How are you? I am well. Nice to meet you. You too. Thanks for doing this with us. Where are you guys? Uh, we are in our newly built studio. That, no, we're not. <laughs> I'm in my basement. <laughs> in Baltimore? Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm closer. I'm actually closer to being in a studio. That behind me is actually like a is an actual sound booth. Um, I'm out in Hunt Valley, Renegade. Renegade is the uh, office that I work at, so it's a okay, production cool. studio, communications, all that stuff. So yeah, we're not we're not too far away. Okay. Yeah. So he's the more technically proficient one that I'm going to lean on at some point. Any advice? Anything that you'd be like? Here's what you need to do to get people. No, to talk I to mean you. I have a podcast, but it's a four minute book review podcast that I've had for. Free. It's so different, you know. I, yeah. I it's fully scripted. And um, it's four minutes long, so I don't really know anything about the, the game that you're in. So. <laughs> we're, we're, sh- we're shooting for two and a half hour epics. Um, <laughs> it's, it's we really I don't have wanted, the patience for We really want to dig into it. We can edit down to four minutes, though, if yes. that's what you're comfortable yeah. with. Right. <laughs> my, my podcast is four minutes because that's my attention span. <laughs> hey, I'm right there with you. Uh, whenever I have meetings, I usually have like a 30 minute cutoff. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's see how far we can get with this one. Um, I was thinking, uh, I very recently wrote an essay about where I'm from, that mm-hmm. I was thinking I could read an excerpt from it. Yeah, please. Yeah, okay. That'd that be awesome. Yeah, yeah I like someone who comes prepared. It's a, um, well, I'll, I'll tell you about it when we get into it. And I also have to tell you, I'm, you know, I'm from sort of from three different places, I think. So it's going to be complicated. Okay. I'm actually super excited about that because I, I okay. you know, knowing your sort of path, you know, from Jersey to Austin to Pennsylvania to Baltimore, you know, you the, picture. The, the road that most of us walk, um, right. you know, I just wanted to get your perspective on that. Well, <laughs> <I> think, <laughs> so how about it? So I had a tough one with this. Where to start with it? Because, you know, in going through your writing, you're so candid. <laughs> <True>. <laughs> like uh, where to start that you haven't already completely opened up to. So I think your essay might be a really good point, actually. Okay. Let me explain that. So I've been teaching creative writing mostly to graduate students, but also undergrads for about 25 years now. And um, one of the assignments that I give in, in the workshop is called intentional forms, where I have them decide a structure for the essay before they write the essay. So it's not just like narrative storytelling and you come up with some kind of structure. And one of the structures I I suggest is an encyclopedia where you do entries for each letter of the alphabet. And I love this technique because it means that your transitions don't have to be so smooth. You can really jump around a lot because you can just stop this letter and go to the next letter. Anyway, I had been giving this assignment for years and I'd never tried it myself. Mm. So uh Really recently, I did write um, one of these encyclopedia essays, and I won't tell you what it's about because you'll be able to tell in a minute. Okay, this is called The Last Place I Saw Them, and it starts with an entry for the letter A. Asbury Park. I usually say I am from the famous beach town of Asbury Park, New Jersey, because people have heard of it, mostly thanks to Bruce Springsteen. But Bruce is actually from Freehold, and I am from the suburban edge of Asbury zip code, an inland area nonetheless called Ocean Township. In fact, I am second-generation Asbury, my parents having raised their four children there decades before Ocean Township was even a twinkle in its developer's eye. My father, their eldest, played quarterback for the Asbury Park High School football team. His name was Hyman, for reasons I will explain. B, best friend's mother. From fifth grade on, my best friend was Sandy, who lived on the other end of Dwight Drive, which the internet confirms is 0.9 miles long and has 72 houses in all. We were number seven. They were number 64. Of all the people who lived in these two houses since 1960, only one is left there, and that is Phyllis, Sandy's mother. Since my mother died in 2008 and my sister and I sold number seven, I have been able to maintain the illusion of going home by visiting Phyllis with Sandy at number 64. C. Clams. 
At the Jersey Shore in the years of my childhood, steamed clams were often served in bright colored plastic sand buckets and came with hot clam broth and melted butter. My parents ate them at a place called Dave and Evelyn's, later just Evelyn's. My parents remained high and Jane, though their union also had its embattled aspects. Recently, I have been craving steamers, hunting for them on menus in various seaside locations. When I found them in coastal Delaware, I got a dozen on a plate for more than twice the price of the old sand bucket. Directions. To get to the street I have not lived on since 1975, but will always think of as home, I would for many years take exit 7A off the New Jersey Turnpike, heading east on Interstate 195 to Shore Points, though if I were coming from the north, I would get off the turnpike at exit 11 and take the Garden State Parkway to exit 109, Eatontown. I know it's a joke to identify yourself by what exit you're from in New Jersey, but these directions have come to feel very sentimental to me. I felt like I might burst into tears as my daughter, also Jane, followed my instructions to take 7A when we recently traveled from Baltimore for a short visit I feared might be my last. I was grateful she didn't insist on using the GPS as the kids often do and thanked her for believing me that I knew how to get there. Of course, she said kindly. E, eternity. It's as if my parents still live on Dwight Drive, though my father hasn't lived there or anywhere else since 1985. Both of them died in the house, in their bedroom, in the bed of which I still use the headboard and frame. When I am on Dwight Drive, I feel strongly they are there somewhere. It is, after all, the last place I saw them, which is where you should look for things you have lost. When not on Dwight Drive, I conjure them through various fetishized practices, for example, by eating peanut butter and bacon on rye, a combination my father enjoyed, or by using odd expressions of my mother's like dopey dildock or starving Armenian. I guess I'll stop there for now. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I, I love the the language and the the part about the last place you saw the like the best place to look for the things that you've lost. Yes. That's great. Very serendipitous. The very next section is um gets into my distant past, my like my my great grandfather leaving Lithuania in the uh around the turn of the nineteenth century. So I that whole that's a crazy story. And I totally weave that into the things about Dwight Drive and Asbury Park. Very cool. It's a great format. It's a great uh practice for any writers. Yeah. It's um it's really a helpful exercise because, you know, with memoir, there's this possibility. I call them like porch stories. Then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And, you know, it, it's just, it really depends on what, what happened being super interesting to have any <laughs> real merit, you know, but sometimes with these forms, you can make something that seems very mundane, like directions, right. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. But it, it grows to have importance just in the in the context of all the things that it's around. It's cool in the, in the format of it. It's funny. I was uh, I was reminded. I don't know. It was randomly, but of like, there's a uh, bare naked lady song uh, called "This Is Where It Ends." But one of the lines is like, you know, she says uh, she wants to live in a movie, and I say, I want someone to come behind me and write it all down because I don't want the responsibility of proving its importance. And I was like, well, yeah. that's a really interesting line of like, you know, living in a movie, but like, but then you have to like have something interesting, you know. Whereas like, I feel like you can eclipse that in in certain ways. Yeah, is it in the moment? But I wonder why he doesn't want to write it all down himself. Well, yeah, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> Lazy. That's why. That's yeah, <laughs> probably. Or you'd prefer to write a song about it. So there you go. All right. <laughs> I like the New Jersey identifiers too, because obviously anyone who has ever been from New Jersey talks about which exit they're from. Yeah. This and, is very uh, much a thing. And Springsteen is. Sure. I, I always say a born to run should be the state song. <laughs> which has its own weird connotation too. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I was born to run, obviously, because yeah. I left. I left New Jersey when I was 17 and I never lived there again. So, wow. Did you go straight to Texas then? No, I went to college in Rhode Island. Okay. Um, so then that took about three years. Then I lived in Austin for about 20 years, then 10 years in Pennsylvania, unfortunately. And then I came to <laughs> around 15 years ago. Cool. Uh, so you were in Austin before it became a tech hub. I was in Austin in 1976. It had 200,000 people. It now has over a million. It was totally different. What was cool about Austin is that it was it had like a mixture of hippie and cowboy ethos that were very flowing together. Like yeah. you would go to a bar like this, I think it was called the Split Rail. And 
it wasn't like a they were the cow, uh, cowboys and hippies. You almost think they could be like the Jets and the Sharks. You know, sure. these were the, the two opposing teams. But yeah. at the time, there it was really you know hippies were wearing their cowboy boots and everybody was driving pickups and having a dog and you know so it was a different. I loved that. And uh, when I went to Austin, there wasn't the homogenous national culture we have now. Like I had never heard of a margarita or a nacho or you know i had never really eaten mexican food because they didn't have that up here so it was a definitely like a foreign country of totally different wonderful things i forget what what drew you to austin my woman that i went to college with at brown was from dallas and we went home to her house on spring break of our freshman year and her friends were all at UT in Austin, her kids she grew up with. So we that's how we went down to Austin. And it was, so it's April of 75, I think, and um, or 76. I mean, I just flipped out. I, I from it, First of all, April in Austin is famously the most beautiful month there. I mean, everything is electric green. There's wildflowers all over the place. You know, and then this whole thing, like with the frozen drinks and the nachos and the cowboys and the dog. I just really was like, it was like falling in love and I just was crazy for it. So um, I, that very, um, as soon as I could, I went back down there and um, I ended up dragging a lot of people down there with me. My sister and best friend both lived there for quite a while and we had a, co- you know, a commune of sorts. So <laughs> a good house. I can picture being going from Rhode Island to Austin, Texas at that time. One time, my sister and I literally drove down from when we were living in New York City, just after I graduated, and I briefly lived in New York in the middle of the 20 years in Austin when I went to grad school. (laughs) My sister and I drove to Austin because we were craving migas, which are this Mexican breakfast that we love so much and that I just made right now, Um, which is basically um, eggs with chips scrambled in them mm. it's a mexican matzo bry so <laughs> very cool so i got a chance to go to why well, I, I went to austin a lot for work but i got to go right before it like really blew up so i feel like i saw the you know the last bit of what you're describing mm-hmm. and i could have just stayed there and never come home yeah it's really a great place and even now i mean Early, early on, even in the 80s, people, if you, you know, people say, well, you didn't get here when it was still good. You know, so it's always been said that Austin, that right. you, you missed the good Austin. But I don't think it can be said to me since I was there <laughs> since 70s. <laughs> it did change, you know, slowly. And also it's, there's, they, they have a, a sense of curating their past, you know, that bumper sticker, keep Austin weird. But mm-hmm. it's kind of impossible because now the curated past costs like you know 50 bucks and is at um you know totally i don't know right it's in a gift shop somewhere next to a tesla factory i still love it still love it but (laughs) they have gone pretty far over the edge into turning into la or something sure i uh the first time that i went to austin uh we had picked it because uh we had just bought our house in baltimore city so i lived in patterson park we say butcher's hill it was really patterson park so we had just bought our house we had been watching a lot of house hunters Mm. And, and, uh, they were always in Austin. And I was just saying to my wife, I'm like, you know, you realize for what we paid for this house, our house was 11 feet wide. I'm like, for what we just paid for this house here, like we could have had a palace there. Look at this place. And so just randomly, but they were always there. So we were like, you know what, let's just go to Austin's. We just picked a random place to go to and absolutely loved it. And we actually ended up timing our, um, thing, not at all on purpose, 100% by accident, but we were there for the Republic of Texas biker rally. Which oh, is wow. the biggest biker rally, I guess, <laughs> in all of Texas. And so uh, it definitely added a certain color to the city. But everybody was like just vibing. Like everybody got along super well. Like it all flowed together. It wasn't like this sort of rowdy crew and everybody you know, just sort of embraced the spirit of what was there. But I mean, on every street corner, uh, down lining every bar front were just motorcycles, on motorcycles, on wow. motorcycles, wow. which is awesome. And that makes me think they have a great um, lowrider parade on Day of the Dead, too. They do. <laughs> so it, great. A couple of things it, I associate. Austin used to, you know, Austin always was the the blue heart of the red state or whatever. But it used to sure. not be the way the amount of divisions in our country and our culture now are so different. Because like when I think I when I lived in Austin, Ann Richards was the governor of Texas. And it just seems so hard to believe that Ann Richards was the governor of Texas, given everything that's happened since. You sure? 
So my both my older sons, who are 35 and 33, were born in Austin. And um, Vince, who came in last night at BWI, he moved back there. So he, uh, I have now, I have, root, you know, my roots are continuing since my son, and he's getting married there next April to his girlfriend that he's been dating since seventh grade. And they're, oh my friends. God. Yeah. How do you date somebody since seventh grade and you make it till 35 without getting married or having? I know. I mean, it's surprising <laughs> they are getting married now, you know. Um, I guess Vince just thought it would be uh, a fun thing to do, um, you know, after everything else. I mean, through long distance in college and. God, that's got, I'm sure they have quite a story. He proposed to her. Vince was a, a, a roadie for the Killers. Oh, uh, my you know, God. Band. And um, he, actually, he was the guitar tech. And so he was oh. on like a world tour with them for the year before the pandemic, I think. We're both actually have our, our first connection as friends meeting what, seven, eight years ago was discussing the killers and how much we love oh, the really? killers and all that. Yeah. Wow. So we've seen them several times together. Yes. So, yeah. So Vince is big friends with them since he traveled with them for two years. But anyway, he proposed to Shannon in Sweden. And then a lot. that's been a while since the, pan, the pandemic and everything has intervened. But right. We're having a wedding with um, catered barbecue and Mexican and, Perfect. Uh, you know, and it's uh, Texas informal or whatever is the dress code. So I just <laughs> bought awesome. rhinestone cowboy boots to wear for it. So there you go. That's awesome. I, would, I think I go bolo tie, you know, the like strings. I don't know if that's yeah, oh, it's still in fashion. Definitely be a lot of those. I'm sure. Okay, good. <laughs> I love that. I'm always impressed when I hear about these like sweetheart stories from when they were kids. I met my wife in my mid twenties, I think, um, early mid twenties, and she always says that if we met one minute earlier, we would not be together. As in, if she had one one more minute of information about you, oh, hundred like- percent. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I was an evolving person at the time, and uh, she met me right past my I don't know peak of uh, degeneracy. Is that a word? <laughs> It's funny. I actually well, I, first the timing. I married a uh, Jersey girl who uh, she uh, grew up in Mount Laurel, so exit four. The uh, but she, you know, her her whole plan was eventually to go back to New Jersey after grad school and then go up to New York and live that life. And then uh, I, we met right in her last year of grad school, and we've been in Baltimore. She stayed in Baltimore, and we've been in Baltimore ever since. But so a lot, a lot of love for you know, sort of the Jersey ethos. But even in there, it's like you can have your it's North Jersey and South Jersey are just totally different spaces true and and where i'm from central jersey is a little different than either one of them because well i guess i i'm from the jersey shore right or has a certainly has an identity all its own you know different than the north jersey are new york suburbs and south jersey is philly philly and also farmland you know that's what I never understood either. Like I, I was explaining to her at one point, I'm like, we had a golf outing and like we were somewhere up in North Jersey. And I'm like, we're like in the mountains of New Jersey. I was like, I didn't even know they had mountains. And of course their mountains are not really mountains, but, but it seems like it, you know, when you're out, out there going, I'm like, it really is. There are a lot of different landscapes in New Jersey, more than people would expect from the, from the stereotype. Oh, sure. I worked um, exactly where The Sopranos was filmed. And so was it Tom's River? Where was it filmed? Well, North Jersey. So I was in Mawa, but the areas all around there, Ramsey and I forget. It, it's like a different neighborhood every 20 feet. I thought that the Sopranos, their, that house was supposed to be in Tom's River. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But um, house maybe was. But, yeah, you know, or, the area yeah, like could have been shot the, and, the fictional location of the house rather than anyway. Yeah. They went to Asbury Park a couple times in the Sopranos. And there were some great uh, scenes of the Asbury Boardwalk in it that were very exciting. Mm. Uh, it was such an accurate description. Uh, everything they had, you know, that life, that culture, the absurd wealth they blended into. And then the fact that there is a neighborhood every 20 feet and each one has its own, you know, municipalities. Mm. So it's kind of how the the mob was taking over, you know, to be the garbage men for that neighborhood. Right. <laughs> it was a good story. Speaking of stories, back to yours, you've written, I mean, this is, again, like where I get stumped, like you've written so much that is so open and honest that, you know, I feel like what is there to pull that you haven't already said very openly? Well, I don't know that many of your listeners have read all 10 of my books. So I guarantee you they have not. So. <laughs> I actually have a question about, were you already starting to write sort of passionately when you were in Austin or did, how did that influence? Starting to write passionately when I was nine. Oh I mean, really, I have a collection of poems 
that were written under the pseudonym Tracy Beth Richardson, that my uh, father's secretary types and everything from <laughs> like eight, eight and nine years old. So, um, yeah, I'm, this is the lifelong situation. Gotcha. Um, when I actually, so when I moved to Austin, I majored in Russian history in college, but because I like thought it would be too predictable to major in English or whatever. And I, and I regretted it in later years because having ended up, you know, as a book critic and um, uh, as, as a teacher, it would have been better if I had a stronger background in literature. But Russian <laughs> history was great. And it, I had it was because the teacher was such a rock star. And I just took every single class he offered. And by then it was close to the major. So anyway, so I was I wrote poetry in all through college. And um, my first book, my first two books are poetry. And one was published in um, when I was 22 uh, by a small, I won a contest to get your first book published that was held by a small press in New Braunfels, Texas, which is outside San Marcos or south of Austin. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was an important moment. I, in 1980, I went to a women's writing conference at the University of Texas at Austin so I was like 21. And I met um, the writer Naomi Shihab Nye, who's a, an internationally famous and important poet. And I saw she gave her, you a, I saw her, uh, her quote for, uh, yeah. She's a whole phenomenon in herself. But anyway, this was a, a, quite a long time ago. And she told me that um, she was one of the judges of a contest to get your first book published and I should enter it because she liked my reading that I did. So um, I did enter it and I won it. So um, that was really exciting. And my, that's, my first book is called Nonstop. And it was a, an edition of 500. And I was so excited about it that I um, I went out and pitched a tent on the land of the place where the book was getting printed so that I could actually see it happening. And Embr embrace the, the whole process. Yep. And we had the <laughs> book party at Liberty Lunch, which was a incredible bar that was in Austin back in the day outdoor that and um, they tore it down to expand city hall or something but <laughs> anyway we all took acid for this book party <laughs> and i kept saying this this is the closest thing i'll ever have to a wedding <laughs> <laughs> little did you know right <laughs> you had more than one in your future i still i still perform some of the um poems from that book one of them like the one that i still often perform is called KKL 565. This is Roy's Taxi in Austin, Texas. And it's um, once when I first moved there, I got a job as a taxi driver, which was insane because I didn't know where anything was. And I was a, <laughs> I was a 17 year old girl, you know, I was 18. And um, anyway, after like one week, they figured out it was a really bad idea to have me, you know, picking up people and going, sure, I can take you to the bus station. Where is it? Right. And, um, <laughs> and uh, they made me the dispatcher. So that really suited my personality to be the dispatcher, bossing oh people gosh. around, talking really fast and, you know, a crash course in, in the city. So mm -hmm. the this poem is like, um, you know, it comes right out of my job as a dispatcher. It's really, and it's all locations. And, and then I had a big affair with another taxi driver, number 193. And yeah, and so that was nonstop. I'm picturing you trying to be a taxi driver in a new city. Pre-GPS. Pre it's not like you're just plugging that in and going. <laughs> Very pre-GPS. I didn't know, literally didn't know where, I mean, I'm surprised I ever even got the taxi back to the taxi place, but um, <laughs> I'm not a good driver on top of everything else. So yeah, it, the driving part did not last long. It, it, it yeah, obviously you've had a very interesting life. You met lots of interesting people, and and sometimes those decisions, you know, you can kind of see where you get led into that. <laughs> so I don't know that based on those qualifications, I don't know that I would have gone into the taxi business. <laughs> you know? Like it's amazing that they hired you. And it's got a job at the at, we're both working at the Stallion, um, which was a, a restaurant that had chicken fried steak and other Texas favorites. But I, I was always sure. uh, I could never keep a waitress job because you know I was just too. You know, by the end of the day, I'd be saying, this system is no good. You need to redo the way you do this. And, you know, they're like, you don't really need to come back tomorrow either. So. <laughs> I'm looking for an operations manager yes. right now. <laughs> I'll come to you when we need problems solved. So the taxi thing, I, um, they were a Latino family. And um, I think they were just sort of fascinated by me and thought, sure, try it, you know. <laughs> what could go wrong? This would be good for a lark. <laughs> <laughs> when I I also worked briefly in their bar on the that was the whole time I worked in this bar I was the only female in the building that didn't last long either so oh man in Texas in the, <laughs> in the 80s 70s 
my. So poetry that led to, I mean, you've done some long form stuff too. Where's the jump there? <laughs> Ish. Ish. Well, here's Ish. what happened. Right. So, um, I went to grad school at Brooklyn College and moved up there from Texas in 81. And um, I went because I wanted to study with the poet John Ashbery, who was teaching there. He really did not like my poetry and, <laughs> and was mean to me. And oh, kind of, he's a, you know, John Ashbery was is one of the most, he's dead now, but, you know, he was one of the most important American poets of the 20th century. That's for sure. And, um, but he was uh, one of, he was a, he was super gay and super misogynist. So he was the type of guy that just doesn't have that much interest in young women. And I guess he didn't like my poetry, but it was crazy. Because wow. If you've ever read John Ashbery, nothing makes a single bit of logical sense. He's a, what they call a language poet. Okay. <laughs> he was speaking um, my po- poem about doing the dishes, saying it wasn't a very good description of doing the dishes. And for John Ashbery <laughs> to say that is like the most ridiculous thing ever. So anyway, it, he, he was so dismissive and it was also depressing that I decided to switch genres. But back then, there was no creative nonfiction. Until 1995, memoir and personal essay were not taught in any literary way because memoirs were just something that like someone like Winston Churchill would write, not right. just regular people. Mm-hmm. Right. That any When people wanted to tell their own story, they would tell it in fiction, whether how much they fictionalized it could be a lot, could be none, you know, but there right. was this thing of just re- anybody writing memoirs and, um, and essays were generally more academic, not, you know, written for entertainment or whatever. So I didn't have that choice. The only other choice was fiction. The problem is that I'm not really a fiction writer. I don't have a great imagination and I don't come up with all kinds of great stories and ideas. So I wrote, uh, I switched to fiction. They loved me, which was great. And because I really needed it after they were, was run by these two experimental guys, Jonathan Baumbach, who's the father of Noah Baumbach, the um, filmmaker. And wow. he's the yeah. guy, in, if you've seen the squid and the whale or the Meyerowitz stories, that sure. guy, that's Jonathan Baumbach. That was, he was like my mentor. So, oh, I mean, crazy. Yeah, that I mean, it's whatever. Who's the guy who plays him? I can't remember now. Um, anyway, they were very welcoming, and I started writing prose. But what ended up, I like I say, wasn't really a fiction writer. And right after I finished my MFA thesis, which was published as my second book, Boy Crazy, which is half poetry and half fiction, mm-hmm. uh, I stopped writing for five years, and it was terrible. I was miserable. All I could talk about is how upset I was that I wasn't writing anymore and how I didn't have any ideas. And I really am surprised that I made it out of this period with any friends at all. In 1987, this a lot of things had happened by then. And I was married and I got pregnant and I had this, uh, the whole process of getting pregnant was humorous to me. And I thought I would write a humor piece called How to Get Pregnant in the Modern World. And I I that. And I didn't even know at this time that, I mean, per, the term personal essay was not in use. No memoirs had been published by, you know, younger people. So I sent it to the Austin Chronicle and they liked it and How to Get Pregnant in the Modern World got published. And I realized for the first time that I could just write down my experiences and stories and thoughts with no um, fictionalization, no gimmickry, no plot, no nothing, just tell it. And yeah. one, the minute I figured that out, it was like a floodgate opened. And I I had this piece of paper where I wrote like 40 ideas down after five hmm. years, no ideas. And I was using that piece of paper probably for another five years. Wow. Um, well, it was so amazing. So when people talk about finding their form, I mean, I really found my form. It was, in, and it had to do with finding my voice and realizing that I didn't have to have all these, I didn't have to have an imagination. <laughs> I didn't have to, right. You know, I didn't have to, have the poets, whatever. I thought there was something, you know, simple. This um, this kind of truth truth telling was really my game. And as you know, if you've read any of my stuff, I mean, so candor and honesty and not pretending that things are fiction is really important to me. And yes, that's how it started. Do you feel like your previous experiences for that sort of like thickened your skin to that? I mean, I like as we've said, like it's so personal, like what you write about is so personal. And so to put yourself out there like that, you know, in, in such ways, you know. I think it was always what I wanted to do and what I was trying to do, even when I was Tracy Beth Richardson. I mean, it was the, the reason that I wanted to write was because I wanted people to understand me, you know, on some level, or I wanted to bond with people about what it's like to be a person. So 
it was like I was trying to do it all along. But when I found out, oh, yeah, you can just do it. <laughs> right, just put it out there. Just say <laughs> Just do it. You know, just tell. So then, you know, I my first book, Telling, was um, what happened is a great thing happened to me. I was had these little stories in the Austin Chronicle, my humor pieces, and an NPR reporter who lived in Austin um, wrote me a postcard because that's what era we were in um, and <laughs> said, uh, would you like to come to my house and record a couple of these things and I'll take them up to Washington to NPR. And I here's my phone number. So I call the phone number and his wife tells me, I'm sorry, John just got sent to cover Operation Desert Storm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's Kurt Russell, by the way, the person we were trying yeah, to think of. Anyway, oh, um, yeah. so, anyway, so John was gone in Operation Desert Storm for six months. Then he came back. It was May of 1991. Yep. And I went over his house and I recorded two of the little pieces from the Chronicle. One was about how hot it is in the summer. And one was called why this Yankee won't go home about how much I love Texas. The day that they listened to them at all things considered, they were having a heat wave in in May in Washington and they really bonded with the heat peak. (laughs) They took it, they put it on the air and then for the next 15 years, I was on All Things Considered doing um, little stories. And that basically is what started my career. So my first book was published by Random House, and it was a collection of, of those pieces and more telling. And then, you know, I had this really sad experience that my first husband died of AIDS in 1994 when we had two little kids. Hmm. And uh, my husband, I met him in a gay bar, so I knew he was gay. But what I did, what we didn't know in... Um, the book I wrote about this is called First Comes Love because the relationship really transcended a lot of stereotypes. And anyway, we didn't know AIDS wasn't even a known thing when we first got together. So in 1985, right before we got married, we were reading about it. And um, he said, you know, I think we should get this test. And I said, yeah, I think so, too. And we were also IV drug abusers. So um, we got it. And he was positive and I wasn't positive, and, um, which was remarkable. So shocking. Yeah, it just shows that some people can't get it because my sister also was negative and she was also and her husband also died of AIDS. Oh wow. So um God. anyway, I just was really hard headed. I thought everything would work out. You know, we I had two kids with him and Tony died when Hayes and Vince were four and six years old. So my second book was a book length narrative of our of our whole story, First Comes Love. And by this time I had told about little stories about me and Tony on the on All Things Considered. And I told the story of his assisted suicide on All Things Considered, kind of against NPR legal advice, because at that time, it was still <laughs> a felony in Texas. Right. Um, I didn't think they would come for me. And <laughs> nowadays, I don't know. They yeah, would be, right. But, um, Different story. But anyway, so that was my, you know, was my second Random House book, First Comes Love. And that was a pretty big deal. I was on Oprah and... Yep. I went on a read that piece too. Book tour. Oh, that was <laughs> that was actually, a, yeah. yeah. I got some good laughs out of that. But it, I mean, you beat me to it. This is actually something that I wanted to bring up. But I, I mean, I don't know. How do you bring up a touchy subject like this? I'm glad you dove into it first. <laughs> but the whole piece on uh, Oprah. I mean, that definitely had me laughing. Without <laughs> coming on, I mean, I almost wanted to introduce you as Mary Wynn just because of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the problem with Oprah was this. First of all, it was literally two weeks before the, they started Oprah's book club. So, you know, talk about your wife met you one day later. Oh, if I had yeah. only, they had only found my book two weeks later. I could have been the first pick of Oprah's book club. But no, I, they didn't. Have, and Oprah wasn't even yet seen as a literary type figure. You know, she the books yeah. that she recommended at this point were like her personal trainer's cookbook or whatever. It wasn't, you know, he wasn't right. seen as a force in literature. And didn't have that many authors on the show. I didn't even want to go on the show. I mean, I was like, I thought it was sort of like Jerry Springer. Or, That's what I'm picturing. I, I mean, at the time, it wasn't far from that, right? And I was on this show that was um, something like, you know, now we meet women who have married gay men. So it was like people who <laughs> found out their husband was gay because they found him with the cabin boy on the cruise. And, you know, people <laughs> the opposite of your story. Or just nothing, you know, there certainly was nothing that was anything like my story. But there was also this other terrible thing that they somehow dug up the fact that Tony had had a long affair with this friend of ours, and I didn't know about it. Fortunately, they did not tell me this on the air, but they did tell it on me on the phone. And then I found out that some of the things I wrote in First Comes Love weren't even true. So I was, it was a terrible experience. Oh, my God. And then I get on Oprah. And now I'm on the show. 
in my $500 shirt that my editor bought me. Wow. And I'm so excited. You know, I have this, I'm just <laughs> so dolled up. And um, she asks me, so your husband was gay, you know, D- did your husband have to be really drunk to make love to you? Wow. Good Lord. Literally asked me this question. And I was really shocked. Um, I always thought, well, I should have just hit her and then I would have been famous and everything would have been <laughs> but, um, <laughs> No, then we'd have no book club. Stammered, you know, and of course they, they, they edited it out. Um, it, it was terrible. It's probably the worst episode of Oprah that was ever recorded. It was really stupid. There was one woman there who kind of looked like Elvira. They had told us in advance, like, if you want to jump in and disagree with things, just go ahead. Well, she just jumped into like every single thing. And oh, disagreed. God, God. I disagree. You know? Thought I was here to talk about a book. <laughs> yeah, I was the only author on the show. Everyone else was just poor victims of their own whatever. And so that was Oprah. But you knew it, you knew it going into it, right? So knew what that he was gay. Oh yeah, I mean no, I, I met the him whole time, right? He was so a it's not skater. a. He was a professional figure skater and a bartender in a gay bar, and it wasn't. There was no. I mean, we didn't walk around saying, "Hi, we're Marion and Tony. He's gay." Um, <laughs> um, it, our we had a uh, regular romantic relationship. Then I, you know, I found out later that it was less monogamous than I believed, but. Um, mm-hmm. But it was. But if it's love, it's love. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, I mean, I, I think that it, I, I'll say that I think I conveyed the story pretty well in First Comes Love. So if you're interested, you can get it from the library. <laughs> Very good. Very good. That's great. That's kind of you. I think you wrote it at the wrong time. I think it would be well received now, just in a more open, inviting way. I wondered, you know, I felt like it was published the same year as The Liars Club and other memoirs that really did very well. And I wondered, I, I'm, I open myself to judgment in a way that is quite different than someone who writes a memoir of their childhood. Sure. My book is really uh, honest about many, many stupid things I did and mistakes I made. You know, it's what we call in the biz self-implication. It's full of self-implication. And you might be right. It might be that, you know, in 1996, they, the world wasn't ready for this level of self-implication. There's some other books that came out around then, like Permanent Midnight by Jerry Stahl. Sure. You know, memoirs always, you know, there's always the possibility of just judging the person rather than, you know, responding to it as a the way you would a novel. A lot of people think right, First yeah. Couple is a novel. They say, I love your novel. But <laughs> no, honey, that's not a novel. Really <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I always, you know, I wish it has been optioned on and off for movies many times. And I I think now would be a great time to make the movie because that period is so nostalgic and all the music of the 80s and 90s would be a great time to make the movie. That is, that's a good story. You had a, what was it, one of your short stories that was optioned or turned into a pilot? Oh, no, it's um, my, the book after First Comes Love that I wrote when I was a widowed single mom, The Lunchbox Chronicles was made into a, a pilot by CBS Universal. It had, believe it or not, it had Steve Carell and Andy Richter in it, which oh was actually hilarious since they were both playing parts that didn't even exist in the actual book. Um, <laughs> Monica, an actress named Monica Potter played me. And it was, they only made the pilot for definitely- When good. was that? Well, the book came out in 98. And I think that this probably happened, you know, 99. I'll drop a phrase that was said to me at a party. So around the turn of the century. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> I know that Hayes and Vince were still pretty little, like maybe nine and seven and or ten and eight. And um, so that would make it ninety-eight. And they came I I was so sure that this thing wasn't gonna succeed that I really wanted to jump on it and go see the see them film the pilot because I knew they would never make another episode. It was really <laughs> Jeez. I was at a uh, Christmas party and somebody was saying something about the music of the early 2000s. And he's like, you know, it's like, so, oh, so like around like turn of the century music. And I was like, <laughs> I'm yeah. like, hold, hold on. Fuck you, guy. Hold There's on. There's only one turn of the century. Somebody told me one of their students asked, they said they found a really good article about whatever, but it was published in the 1900s. And they had <laughs> oh my gosh. The 1900s existed from 1900 to 1930. 1900. <laughs> yeah. At a certain point, I guess you have to brush that off if you're teaching these kids, but yeah. give her a snap. They're like, oh, come on. Uh, it's funny you're saying as far as like just the opening yourself up to criticism or, or judgment, because I feel like it is very personal. So it's like, you know, you people read your books or read um, the essays and, and stuff and you just go, hey, I know her. 
Do you get that vibe when you talk to people or meet people for the first time that they, you know, sort of have this sense? You know, I know you so well and you don't know me at all. Mm. I don't feel it. Like, I feel like if you know a lot of facts about me and you know a a construct of me that I created and made into a a literary character, but it's not the same as knowing the person. Yeah. The other hand, I get it. If I have a new friend and like a few months go by and I sense that they haven't read First Comes Love, I'll be like, Okay, this friendship, it cannot go on. (laughs) (laughs) Here's my backstory, literally. Yeah, and and I'm not telling it again. That's um, actually a funny uh, thing, too, because I was going to ask, is there anything for you, uh, and I'm sure there are boundaries, logically, but like, do the people in your life just accept that, you know, you're probably going to make it into an essay or into a story or get published, (laughs) or do you? No, they don't accept that because I I don't do that. Um, I'm really careful with the people in my life to make sure that they are not, you know, I've I've learned this the hard way. I mean, you know, you have to, if you care about your relationships, some people that write memoir say that the art is more important than relationships or whatever, but I don't believe that at all. So I will show if I, if one, if my kids are in something, I show it to them before I publish it. Of course, when they were really little, that wasn't, you know, (laughs) I learned this the hard way, but, um, yeah, I think it's very important to... Um, but you respect boundaries. Yeah. So if there's so much ethical complications in memoir. Even even when the people are dead, there's ethical complications because, you know, you're... Sure. Because people so will I, know I, who they are, right? But I, one of the projects that I did in the 21st century is um, <laughs> these books of the dead that I have. They're 400-word portraits of people that I knew who died, ranging from, you know, my parents to my son's second grade teacher to Lou Reed and David Bowie to some cats and dogs and bridges and, um, Prince, and, uh, Prince right. <laughs> and, um, and with those, you know, I would always, um, almost always contact people, relatives or whatever, significant people for the dead person, find out, you know, it, maybe interview them, get, find out st- if I know everything or if I don't know everything or things I need to know. And then I don't, I didn't use anyone's name because the dead people can't consent to be in the book. So I call mm. them the dentist, the bad influence, the big sister. Golden boy. And uh, for each of those little 400 word pieces, there's, you know, the sort of some kind of ethical backstory that I went through because it's published as nonfiction, you know, so it's true mm-hmm. stories about people who really did live. And a lot of the people that are in the book, that's really the only record of them in literature. Like they weren't writers. No one in their family is a writer, you know, and, and right. um, so it's, it's special that they're, they're in a book. Part of what I love about that, uh, I was going to say is it, like, as I started to read um, the book of the dead, I was like, you know, I don't know, it could be morbid or whatever, but I actually found it to be kind of interesting. I love that it's just, you know, sort of anecdotal stories about people. And I feel like you read that and you're like, ah, I feel like I know, you know, people like that or are around that. But I feel like everyone has a great little like hook. And I actually found it to be almost more um, not I want to say life affirming or something like that. But it made me want to reach out more to the people in my life because I'm like, man, I probably know lots of people, you know, in in that in that way, you know, or people that you're like, we had fallen out of touch. But then I found out later, whatever, and all that and all the interesting things. And I was like, man. Makes me like really want to reach out to people and find out kind of what's going on in their lives too. So just about that. That was how what I kind of started to get sort of nostalgic for the friends that I had or the people that kind of kind of went along the way. In Did my... you were you looking at um, the Baltimore Book of the Dead or Baltimore, the big... yep. yep the Baltimore one Baltimore. So in the Big Book of the Dead, you know, I collected the two earlier books and made them into more of like my life story by putting them in the order that they of the, that I met them and I wrote some new ones and. But those really, you know, how we talked about how I started in poetry and then I went and then how I like intentional forms and how the dead people like these books of the dead are, I feel like they're the kind of the essence that they're what I came here to do there. Yeah. I feel really connected to them. And so, I mean, I wrote the Glenrock book of the dead in, I think it was published in 07 or something. And then 10 years later, I just kept thinking, I never, I can't think of another idea that's as good as that idea. And then I realized that 10 years went by and so many more people died. So I would just do it again. <laughs> and that yeah. was the Baltimore Book of the Dead. And then I started thinking, I really need to put these books together and show the flow <laughs> of the, and so, and then that's that, cool. the big Book of the Dead. But you never know, I might, might do it again. But first of all, they could be described as poetry, memoir, or fiction. So they're really 
post genre and they um, have everything I care about really is in them. So it's great. Really clever. It's a cool tribute. Thank you. Yeah. So there was a couple other pieces that I wanted to ask you about too, or that I had a comment on, but I also had one note. You mentioned uh, Prince was one of the ones you wrote about. So my Prince story, my wife still teases me about right after the Freddie Gray incident in Baltimore, when, you know, there were some riots out, Prince showed up and did a surprise show here. And I jumped online and I got two tickets. They were sitting in my cart and we had like a newborn. So my wife couldn't go. She was like, just you go by yourself or find a friend. And I was like, I don't know anyone who's going to spend 300 bucks a ticket to go see Prince right now. She was like, well, you go by yourself then. Aaron and I did not know each other at the time because I would have true. <laughs> I would have just made you go. And I was like, ah, screw it. You know, I don't want to go by myself. I'll just go next time he comes to town. Oh, wow. <laughs> Well, so, um, I went, and that's what my—that's what the piece is about in the yeah. book of dead. Um, yeah. that concert is in it. Um, oh. Yeah, I paid a thousand dollars for two tickets because um, we sat in the third row. And oh my I, god! I think I had an inkling that it was somehow. I had a feeling like this is it. And, I wish uh, I had that inkling. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Kick myself. I saw Tom Petty uh, on his last tour, uh, and because one of my friends was like, you know, these guys are getting up there in age. We got to go see him. We got to go see him because you don't know. And I'm like, and then you know, before the end of the tour, you know, he had died. I was like, you killed Tom Petty. Why did you do that? Why did you do that to him? He's a good man. <laughs> There's a video of me reading the Little Prince piece on the Baltimore Sun site that you could link to when you oh, cool. uh, host your huh. podcast. Very yeah. cool. It's just like you know, they're so short. It's like two minutes long. Sure, yeah. I'll look that up. Yeah. So another piece that I read of yours that I loved was the one, uh, how I made my first million oh. to get the title, right? <laughs> That's how, how I made my first million in 22 years. <laughs> well, exactly. You know, the title doesn't infer that. And then you get into it and it is hyper specific about, you know, how much you made off of every deal, every piece, uh, along the way and how that all added up. I I'm guessing you meticulously, you know, kept notes, spreadsheets along the way. Well, I could tell, I could open it right now. That very first thing we talked about, the, the how to get pregnant in the modern world, which I think I got like $22.70 for or whatever, I wrote it down. I mean, for many, many years, I had a paper record. Then I changed it to Quicken. Then I changed it to... But anyway, now it's in a spreadsheet. And um, I'll tell you how much money I've made as of today. Why don't we find out? Because that article is, is, is outdated. No, I am now up to... That was $22 in the 1900s, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the latest numbers. Okay. So as of today, I have made $1,513,847.32. There you go. <laughs> Big time. Yep. But um, I do a lot. I still do a lot of work that's very low paid. Um, I review for Kirkus, which is the reviews books before they come out. And that's it's $50 a book. So, right. you know, that's not much. And um, a lot of a lot of things with book reviewing are low paid, but I have an article coming out in Cosmo Ooh. in January. Oh. So um, yes, it's about the sex life of women in their sixties. I've been looking for a good piece on that, and I'm also <laughs> working for Oprah now. I write for uh, uh, write books about books what? for Oprah daily in a what? an ironic post lude, right? <laughs> Did you say? Excuse me, I'd like to have a conversation with you real quick about that. <laughs> about a time in my I'm life. Near, when I... I'm nowhere near Oprah herself, but I am at doing book book reviews for her online. Wild, That's crazy. It's full circle. Yeah, seriously. So yeah, I think it's really important. You know, my son is a musician, and I think I kind of modeled how to be an arts entrepreneur at that, you know, it seems like in the arts that you either have to be like a best-selling famous, famous person, or you just give up and, you know, yep. you don't do it at all. But there's actually a way to have a career where you're not a household word, but you don't oh, have. Yeah. That's why I like this piece so much. I mean, it was, it really breaks that down and creates that gap between the two. You know, it's not like you have to sell a million dollar piece or you're a failure. There's it's a career like everything else. And you know, yep. there's a lot of small pieces along the way and you'll have some big successes if you keep working at it. But, you know, it's not a one shot deal. I say um, that I think with creative work, there's a formula that uh, has to add up to 100 percent and a percent of talent, a percent of persistence and a percent mm -hmm. of luck. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can say you have a really big talent. You might not have to have that much persistence and just a little luck. 
say you have a medium talent, you better have a ton of persistence and some really good luck, you know? Right. right. So, um, yeah. I, I think that that you can kind of break it down with different people where, where, where they fit in the formula. And I know for me, like, the highest number is in the persistence one. Just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> just keep, keep going. Right. But I mean, no matter how good you think you are, I mean, there's, you always can improve, you know, it's a muscle just like everything else that creative, that brain piece, you keep working at it. It's true. But there's, there is such a thing as raw talent. I mean, there's people that are, have a gift, you know, sure, totally. They have a big gift. I'm not saying I have no gift, but you know, I don't, but uh, no, I, I think you're very I'm in awe. Talent. I'm in awe of the huge artistic gifts, not just in literature, you know, so. Yeah, me too. Uh, it's half of the reason we do this. Yeah. Just curious, uh, when, you know, what makes people tick and how they got there. Yeah. I had a college roommate that could write lyrics about anything. I mean, you could just give him a topic and, you know, he'll spit out, you know, he'll write down. And they were always like, at least B, B effort work. You know what I mean? Like, and there was definitely a lot of A pluses in there too. But I was just like, man, to be able to just tap into that and have it go so like sort of what seemingly effortlessly, of course, it's not effortless, but I'm like, man, some people just, you know, yeah, I think that's definitely a thing. Like you just get, there's you know, God given talent and that's that. And then there are the ones that, you know, you can see that their luck meter was really high. Their luck index was super high because the talent part of it is, is, is not. I agree. I do agree. That my formula accounts for that. So. Very good. What's funny though, is like, you know, some of the best biographies I've read of musicians who are from like crazy talented people got to where they are just because they were in the right place at the right time because they really put themselves out there and just worked at it constantly and said yes to everything and i mean everything you're telling me just lines up with that too like you hit the road and you just took all kinds of crazy jobs and you kept trying new things and you know you ran into people because you were out there well my career started you know what these in the in the 90s when i was publishing with random house and getting reviewed in the new york times book review and going on 21 city book tours and going on oprah I had a really early peak. And then I didn't, those books just didn't sell in the, in the way that, you know, they have books have to sell for you to stay at that level. So sure. your Lunchbox Chronicles, Random House was like, yeah, we really love you, but I don't think we're going to publish any more books from you because we're not enough of them. So I ended up, I mean, th at that point it could have been over, you know, but that's, right. that, I mean, I've published six books since then. I don't have an agent. I haven't had an agent in a while. I my, I sold huh. my books myself. Um, I ended up at a great independent publisher, which is Counterpoint in Berkeley, California, which is one of the best. And I mean, everything that happened since this incredible start that I had, really, I, it took a lot of belief and persistence because I never had the good, I had all my good luck really early on. You know, I'm on the phone to Henry Winkler and he's going to make my movie and I'm talking to Ali Sheedy and I'm getting a blurb from this one and that one. But all this happened a long, long time ago. And ever since then, um, it's just been keeping on, keeping on. Right. Yeah. I, mean, it, I think that's the important part. And that's why you keep the spreadsheets of all the little uh, <laughs> accomplishments you have, you know, because it's if you just stopped there and said, where do I go from here? Then you wouldn't have had further opportunities. It's hard. People do give up and they and I don't blame them, you know, but for me, there's just no giving up. My son and I were talking about this last night. He said, you know, Ezra Klein, the big podcaster from the New yeah. York Times. He was saying that Ezra did some end of year show where he talks about how he's lucky that he has like almost a compulsion to do what he does. He can't not do it. He can't do anything else. And he can't not ruin his life by just spending all his time blogging and podcasting. And, you know, <laughs> we we said we relate it, to this compulsion. So. It burns in you. Yeah. You know? Like I said, you have to get it out there. That's awesome. Yeah. It's that uh, creative itch. I, I understand that. And I think that's pretty much the divide in like kind of what you're talking about, the people who just have that big hit or are able to get that early on and the people who do it because just they have to, you know, and everything's taken away and they're not making any money. Like they, they still have to, mm -hmm. this is who they are. You have to like, well, you have to enjoy it too. Yeah. And I do, I do. That's good. You've got a wild collection of books and stories. And, um, I think if they were published now, they would be bigger hits just because they really fall within, uh, so much of what's going on now, what's popular and, you know, the topics that are bestsellers really. Well, let me point out that they are all still in print. <laughs> you can still yes. get them. You can still you find can them. Get any <laughs> at your local bookstore or on your at your online seller. Yes. So, yeah, I'm lucky that none of my books are out of print. And actually, in in 2020, uh, Above Us Only Sky was a collection I did in the early part of this century. Mm -hmm. Was reissued with 22 new essays, and um, so oh, you wow. know, 
Yeah. It's a lot to add on. Why'd you tack it onto that and not create something new? Um, because Above Us Only Sky was going to go out of print at the p- original publisher, Seal. So I asked Counterpoint if they would want to reissue it just to keep it in print. I, I meant just as an ebook, but they were like, no, well, if we're going to do it, let's just do it. And I said, well, if we're going to do it, you know, I have a ton more essays since 2005. How about if we add a new section? And it really works because Above Us Only Sky is kind of the history of my family. Like it kind of starts when the kids are little and it, it, it in the old days, it went to, I don't know, I was in my 40s or something. But, um, you know, so the, the last section, you know, takes it all the way through Empty Nest. And now it's it's like a document of raising a family, but it's all written in real time. Like it was all, everything was written as it was happening, not hmm. me looking back from now. Right. So um, it was the perfect one to get the new you know, to get the new material. Thanks. I, okay. But like, I think that's a really cool space though, because you were already so prolific, you were already writing so much that, and then to be kind of going through that, like I, I was reading, you know, just, and I feel like having gone through so many stages of life, family, parenthood, whatever, um, in that moment and the way that you write about it is what makes it so relatable as you're going through that. And I think it's cool to see because you're so good at it in the moment there too. Like <laughs> I was reading. Well, you know, I've been that. writing this column for the Baltimore Fishbowl since 2011. That's basically, <laughs> you know, memoirs of yesterday because, right. you know, I just write about what's happening now. I just wrote one about Thanksgiving. It's called Thanksgiving versus Chat ChatGPT. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed it. It's funny, actually. I just had a uh, cross section of my life where somebody, um, you know, sort of created this poem on uh, using using AI and, and was like, "Hey, here's my great poem." And I was like, "Okay, that you can, mm-hmm. but you, you you know, if if you know what you're looking for, you can kind of see the cracks in the." Uh, I'm sure it had the word tapestry in it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> ChatGPT, love, they think if anything is a tapestry, it's automatically A1 going to the Louvre. Yes. God, yeah, right. <laughs> it's so great. All right. Well, we've already kept you over, but uh, I do have one final question that we always like to jump to. Talking about where someone comes from and uh, what's important to them there. I mean, mm-hmm. what's important to everyone really is uh, food, music, drinks. Mm-hmm. So you've jumped around so much. I'll let you pick which place you identify as home and would want to take someone out for an evening to a string of your favorite spots. Oh, it's Austin, of course. I, I was hoping to say that. God, I was hoping you were going to go. I hope you were going to. I was hoping you were going to go Glen Rock and just really shock us all. <laughs> no, I will not be taking. We will not. There's nowhere to go in Glen Rock. But um, no, I mean Austin was my is my sort of was my chosen home. I love Asbury Park too. Yeah. But Austin, th- that the culture, the southwestern culture, really, I responded to it so deeply. And uh, if we're going to go out, I mean, we might as well go to Austin, right? Yeah, sure. So specifically, where are we going? You know, first of all, if we can go to restaurants that don't exist anymore, we would <laughs> definitely be going to El Taquito Chef for breakfast. That was the dream, the El Taquito Chef. And um, I mean, there's still plenty of good Mexican restaurants, and you know, we could go to Maudie's or. Mm-hmm. Whatever, but we're definitely having Mexican breakfast. This is my thing that I have to have. It's the best. And, uh, yeah, that's what I love so much. And then you know, well, let's go out and see my son's band, me and Adam. They're really, really. They just sold out three nights at the Continental Club for their annual holiday party. I be- so I believe that was the last place I saw music at in Austin was at the Continental Club. Yeah, we awesome. stayed right down the street. Yep. They do a. Ho- this is really cool. They do. You know how I told you that. The girl, my friend from Brown was the person who brought me to Texas mm-hmm. in the first place. Uh-huh. A woman founded a refugee center called Casa Marianella that has accept, you know, people, refugees from all over the world. And they have all these houses and they, you know, people can stay there for a long term and they help them get on their feet. Um, so me and Adam has a benefit for that refugee thing every year at Christmas. Awesome. So it's so full circle for me. The person who first brought me down there, now my son is this year they raised like $10,000 for them. Oh wow. And um yeah, so three nights so they they're up to three nights in a row because that's how many tickets they can sell to this thing. They're really getting place. popular in Bo- in um Austin. And it's me and Adam. And I will take credit for naming them because <laughs> <laughs> what should we call the band? And he, every, as we talk about the band, he goes, me and Adam did this, me and Adam did that, me and Adam did this, me and Adam did that. Oh, uh, that's well, great. And, oh, yeah. And nice. they have also have drummer, keyboard, and uh, another another guitar player, too. But so that's what we're going to see me and Adam. Yeah. And we could stay at the San Jose Hotel because that was founded by, a, it was changed from like a junky SRO by a friend of mine, Liz Lambert, who's now kind of a famous hotelier. Mm. And I- They've got killer hotels on there. Yeah, I invested like every 
penny I had, like my entire savings in this delicious, and we made a lot of money. So, oh wow, which one's the San Jose Hotel? I think I've stayed there. It's uh, the light green one that's on South Congress, and it has a, a coffee shop named Joe's in the parking lot. It's across. Oh, it's yeah, yeah, right yeah. In- I have stayed there. And it says, I, it's, uh, I love you so much. Someone yep. painted that in graffiti. On, I know the person who painted that. There's always people taking pictures in front of it now. And I love, um, when we were there, just there at Thanksgiving, uh, we went to Laguna Gloria Art Museum, which has these beautiful grounds. They have peacocks walking around. And I used to take my little sons there for art classes back in the day. But it's right on Lake Austin. And it's so that's what we can do in between Mexican breakfast and going out to see me and Adam. Yeah, I, I have no doubt that we could plan a, a good time in Austin. I love it. Yep. I love every bit of it. What about drinks? Last one. Margarita. But I mean, I'm picky about the margarita that I consider the gold standard is at this restaurant that was, I think there might be closed forever now, but it's called Manuel's on Congress, not South Congress, but downtown. All the margaritas are better. Even any margarita in Austin is better than any margarita that you're going to get somewhere else. It's just, yeah. I don't even know why I bother ordering them anywhere else because I basically have to do, give, first of all, I have to give a recipe. Don't put this... <laughs> Put that, put this. No goddamn sour mix. For God's sake. No roses, lime juice. No, but, uh, you know, and so usually I say I want a Mexican martini because that gets you closer to what a margarita really should be. Mm. But even places like Chewy's and, yeah. you know, the, the, these places, Trudy's. The bigger all, So, yeah, we're not, we're never going to get a bad margarita in Austin. I don't. I think you're right. Yeah, that's fantastic. I started ordering uh, ranch waters, which I picked mm-hmm. up from there just because. Everywhere here, you know, has sour mix. I'm like, I don't want that. I just want tequila and lime and some soda. And there you go. Yeah. So Ranch Water sponsors me and Adam. They oh. have, they have so, they are, you know, millennials. They have so many sponsorships. Yeah, sure. Maybe Ranch Water will sponsor your podcast. Yeah, there you go. Oh, there you go. Yeah. All right. Well, lots to look up, lots to link to. We've held you longer than we said we would, but this was a delightful conversation. I feel like I could talk to you all day. Yeah, seriously. I really appreciate you um, reading my work and getting, you know, more up to speed on the whole situation. Yeah, but I mean, there's so much content there. It's really interesting. You do a good job of telling it. Very nice talking to you. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye.